Digital Drift, episode 16. Recorded Friday, 7th of March, 2014. X-Men. Ladies and gentlemen, we are now seeing the beginnings of another stage of human evolution. In every human being, there's not many people that will understand people like us. There exists the genetic code. You'll be safe here. What kind of place is this? You're not the only one with gifts. For mutation. The truth is, mutants are very real. And they are among us. We must know who they are, and above all, what they can do. A change is coming. Are you a God-fearing man, Senator? we fear. Magneto believes that a war is brewing between mutants and the rest of humanity. We'll be all that can save us. If no one is equipped to oppose them, humanity's days could be over. You're a mutant. The whole world out there is full of people that hate and fear you, and you're wasting your time trying to protect them? You sure you're on the right side? I have made the first move. That is all they know. He could wipe out everyone in New York City. Logan, help us. Fight with us. I'll take care of you. We are the future, not them. We're not what you think. Not all of us. Welcome to Digital Drift. I'm Sharon Shaw. I'm Alex Shaw. And tonight we're talking about the first X-Men movie released in 2000 in an ongoing podcast review series leading up to Days of Future Past. The Uncanny X-Men was a comic first released in September 1963, created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, shortly after they created the Fantastic Four, and the very same month as the Avengers. That makes 2013 the 50th anniversary of the existence of this phenomenon. Just like in this film, Charles Francis Xavier founded a school for gifted youngsters to shelter and train the newly emerging mutants from a world that hates and fears them. They faced Magneto, Charles's former friend, a political philosophical opponent, thundering headbutt machine, the Juggernaut, and towering mutant-hunting Terminators, the Sentinels. But things weren't always rosy for this franchise. After 12 dismal years of middling popularity with the initial all-American team of Cyclops, Angel, Beast, Iceman and Marvel Girl, the book was on the verge of cancellation. Then in 1975, Chris Claremont came onto the scene with Giant Size X-Men number 1 and introduced a new international team of more vibrant characters, Storm from Africa, Nightcrawler from Germany, Native American Thunderbird, who immediately died, Sunfire from Japan, Banshee from Ireland, Colossus from Russia, and of course, hailing from Canada after a brief first appearance in The Incredible Hulk, grumpy, scrappy old knucklehead, The Wolverine. Claremont's run was a wild success and persisted through the 70s and 80s, giving life to some of their most abiding storylines, protagonists and antagonists, including Rogue, Apocalypse, Mr. Sinister, The Hellfire Club featuring the White Queen, The Dark Phoenix Saga, The Morlock Massacre, and of course, Days of Future Past. In 1983, since the X-Men were all grown up, some fledgling students of Xavier's Academy became the New Mutants. In 1986, the original X-Men returned in the sister book, X-Factor. In 1987, Nightcrawler moved to England and founded the Excalibur team, featuring Captain Britain. And in 1988, Wolverine got his own ongoing series. 
By now, these five books constituted one of Marvel's most valuable franchises. Then in the 90s, everything exploded. The X-Men divided into two teams, the gold team in the ongoing Uncanny X-Men and the blue team in the newly minted X-Men book, penned by now superstar artist Jim Lee. X-Factor got new faces as the old X-Men returned. The new mutants became X-Force, an edgy, violent sci-fi filled with sinewy, muscular characters, huge guns, shoulder pads and many pockets led by hulking old man Cable, a time-travelling militant mutant who got his own book. Yet more young students became Generation X. With eight books released a month, crossovers became commonplace. The toys were released and sold like hotcakes along with video games and merchandise, all aided by the animated show, fondly remembered to this day, and which we'll be talking about in one of these episodes. As we have discussed on this show before, though, this was a delicate time for Marvel. Buxom, sexy babes in skimpy costumes was what everybody suddenly wanted to see. Superstar artists with the flavour du jour and a bunch of them left to form their own studio, Image, partly fuelled by the insane popularity of the Spider-Man and X-Men books that they helped relaunch. The crossovers and chromium covers, the hundreds of characters, became too much and actually served to repel new readers as continuity became a ridiculous spaghetti mess stretching back over three decades. Marvel were bankrupt to the comic bubble burst. The medium that had made them a major aspect of the 20th century could no longer sustain them on its own. At their darkest hour, and after all these years of gathering steam, the freight train of X-Men popularity needed a single media event to unify and simplify the brand. To give it a serious edge and worldwide acceptance and recognition, in short, they needed to do something that had not been done successfully since the first Superman movie proved that superpowered heroes could be done on film. And this wasn't just for X-Men, this was for Marvel in general. As it happens, the producers of 2000's X-Men were Superman director Richard Donner and his wife, Lauren Shuler Donner. If we take 1998's Blade as the supernatural sci-fi horror movie pilot, the proof of concept, then X-Men was the first true modern superhero movie. There are constraints, however, in bringing these popular characters off the printed page and onto the big screen that affect this movie to varying degrees and make it something of a rocky start for the adaptation chain that it began. Bear in mind the key demographic of teenage boys that the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the Justice League films are being made squarely in mind of were just being born at the time of this film's release. I feel it old. Is a mu- <laughs> Sorry? <laughs> I feel old. It is a museum piece to be studied. We're going to go through it character by character and assess the strengths and weaknesses with the perspective lent to us now by 14 years of superhero movies. Okay, so... What we found when we were taking notes down is that a lot of our um, uh, perspective on this movie applied to characters, and we could uh, boil it down to little character studies. So that's what we're going to do, as, as Sharon said above. Uh, we're going to take through it character by character. And the first guy you meet is Eric Lenscher uh, in Auschwitz. Here's where something I've been wanting to say about Magneto really, really uh, comes into play. A constraint exists with his character that virtually no other must experience. To date, he has always had his roots in the Holocaust. 
Eric Lenscher is so intrinsically linked with this real-world atrocity that very soon Marvel are going to have to address this. To begin with, in the 1963 comic, he had been a grown man who had lost his wife only 20 years previously. Over the decades of comic continuity, only eight years or so of actual comic time had to pass to account for why Xavier's students didn't grow into their 40s and risk alienating their audience. But what that meant was that the specifics of Eric's involvement with the Nazi death camps had to be altered as they went. He was de-aged to the form of an infant and then re-aged to his mid-fifties, still sporting a muscular frame. They just about got away with all these shifts up until 2000, whereupon he could still have had some experience in this capacity and still be a prominent X-Men character. In the first movie, his age is nailed down. He was a young boy of 12 in the early 1940s, making him physically a frail old man in his early 70s by the time the events of the movie occurred. This was double-bound by Michael Fassbender in his early 30s in X-Men First Class, set appropriately in the early 1960s. When Captain America falls in battle and is frozen to be awoken later in the modern day, all that needs to occur when they reboot is that the length of his sleep extends. 20 years before Discovery in the Avengers comics, 57 years in the Ultimates, 70 years in the 2012 movie. It is very important that these horrendous events happen to Eric, not just his parents or his grandparents. No global conflict since the Second World War, which by its very nature affected the world, has resonated in the same way. No stronger or more pervasive case of prejudice taken to its most horrific end exists. There is nothing the human race is collectively more ashamed of than the decisions and actions of the Nazis. Thus, no sharper comparisons to the treatment of mutants. This is something that will not survive constant rebooting in its current form. The year is 2014, 14 years after the first X-Men movie, 69 years after the close of World War II. By movie and comic continuity, Eric, and by extension Charles, are in their 80s. To paraphrase Chris Rock, when was the last time you saw someone in their 80s just doing shit? How long can Marvel keep this up without stasis, freezing, time travel, mind transplant, or some other cheap manner of displacement that still allows them to retain Eric's backstory? Right. Two comments I would like to make about this. Mm -hmm. this. First of all, um, you're absolutely right. While there have been atrocities that have been committed since World War Two, The first one that sprang to mind, for example, for me, was just the Rwandan genocide. Yep, absolutely. Um, or the ethnic cleansing that took place when um, uh, Yugoslavia was falling apart. Yeah. Um, but the scale yeah. is ultimately the, the most important thing about the Holocaust. And the historical significance of it. And absolutely. there's not enough people the who know about the two things we just mentioned. Exactly. It's it's so prominent in um, in world consciousness, international consciousness. Um, and I think that for that reason, it's even more important that as we get further and further away from that conflict, that they do find ways to keep that within the story. Mm. Because, and this is something that we have come back to over and over again, the idea that um, that the superhero... Um, 
the superhero stories that that you and I and and so many people of of our generation and the ones that followed ours, uh, the the stories that we grew up with, they are our mythology. Mm-hmm. And when your mythology is very closely intertwined with your history, it makes it that much more powerful. There really the, aren't that many other characters that actually tie in with this. Captain America was the one I thought of, but like I said, there, there's that wonderful ability for him to just sleep for a thousand years if need be. Yes, and also, very significantly, where was Captain America when all this was going on? Mm. He, he was, was... Fighting the good fight. He was fighting the good fight, but also, and, and specifically, it's in the name. He was in America. and Well, technically largely, he was in Germany. Well, yeah. Punching but, Hitler over and over again. Exactly. But initially, he was largely isolated. When he was still Steve, before they pumped him up, mm-hmm. he was still relatively isolated from all this going on. Um, I mean, one of the things that, that struck me, and it, it seems like a, a silly exercise, really, but to, to try and think yourself back into historical events, what was going on in the world um, in, in around that time? Where would you have been if you were in that particular era? And, and what would you have been participating in? Um, and ultimately, when I, when I look at that, that period of history and that part of the world, if I'd been involved in that, I'd have been where Eric was. My great great grandparents were Jewish, you know, if they'd turned left and stopped in Germany on the way round when they left Latvia and instead of carrying on going and fetching up in flipping fishing town Grimsby, I could potentially never have existed. You also have Romany uh, blood in you and uh, they weren't too keen on gypsies either. Yeah, that too. But but it's it's that era and that those events remaining in the consciousness of people who are being born further and further away from the events keeping them in um in our mythology and in our entertainment is a really valuable way of making us remember Mm. and like i say i think for that reason if nothing else they do need to find a way to keep eric's story firmly rooted in in the concentration camps. It would be prudent for them to figure out a single unifying way to make that work, to mm-hmm. make Eric say a 40-year-old now. Some kind of displacement which basically allows him to have these memories still very fresh and this resentment burning very deeply and for him to still not be this Rip Van Winkle type character who's got no idea about the world, but some some way that can, they can go on with for the next 50, 60, 100 years. Because they're gonna, they're gonna carry on being X-Men stories, this thing. Yeah, and I mean, in, in the immediate term, it would be fair to say that, uh, human life expectancy, specifically in the first world, is getting longer, a lot longer. Um, we're at the point now where I, I think we've just passed the point where, uh, girls born now can reasonably expect to see a hundred. True, but he also still needs to remain formidable, not simply alive if wolverine leaps at him you need to believe that more than a stiff breeze is required Mm -hmm. to blow him over he is still a villain he has must still remain imposing if he actually gets to him yes but he can't simply become a decrepit monkey skeleton 
No, but I mean, for me, his power has always been in, um, you think about the nature of the electromagnetic fields that he projects. It's all about keeping people away. It's all about making sure that nobody actually gets near enough to knock him over. Yeah. There is still, as I said, though, a finite amount of time that they can really carry on with this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I say, even taking into account the, the lengthening life expectancy, that only takes you so far. Yeah. And it's something, like I said, that Marvel needs to address. But let's move on to Charles from here. I mean, we could talk about Eric throughout the film, and in fact, he definitely comes up near the end. But um, Charles and Eric's um, relationship. A little bit of backstory on this film. We, we were both big X-Men fans during the 90s and our teenage years, and um, we were both really, really looking to, forward to this film. We got together around about the time this film was coming out. And so it was one of the first films we actually went to see. It wasn't the first we went to see at the cinema. Do you remember what the first one was? Um, Final Destination 2? No, no, just Final Destination. Just the first one. The Final Destination. But that was, that was before we, that was as a group, wasn't it? We weren't, that wasn't a date. I think technically the first film we went to see as a couple, although we didn't finish seeing it, was High Fidelity. Really? Was that before this? Well, it was a film about a very, very difficult breakup. Yeah, I know. I just couldn't remember whether we'd seen this before that or immediately after, but okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we went in to see this, and I remember it coming out and going, what the fuck? I was really down on this movie. I didn't hate it. There were many things I liked about it, and I think I retained that, but I was very disappointed by how low-grade, cheap, and TV movie it felt. I think there's a very specific reason for that, though, and it has to do with the pacing and the arc of the film as a whole. Mm. It starts quite strongly. Mm-hmm. It goes downhill. It does. It, the, the final third of the movie feels very rushed, and uh, they just sort of like had to get it out the gate. It's only an hour and 45 minutes long. That's, that is minuscule by today's standards of superhero movies. You'll be looking at another 45 minutes on top of that. And it feels, to, the, to that end, somewhat incomplete. Like There's a big chunk of... Um, uh, something before the final third. Like, there's no middle to this movie. Mm. It's build up and then climax. But I think the other thing is as well, um, some of its most positive points would actually have been very difficult to see from the perspective of only having seen this film. Yeah. Looking back on it now, and I'm sure this is something that we'll go into more detail later on, it's, you can see clearly that they went right. Things are serious. Things are very grey. It's not all exactly. It's not all bright colours. And yet, and we'll talk about this later. Most obviously inspired by the Matrix in too many ways. Mm. So it's like they, they really wanted to do the Matrix, but they also wanted to keep it really, really real. Those two things don't go together. No. No, they don't. So, yeah, the actual, the way it went in terms of this film series was the first one was sort of, oh, that's disappointing. Second time, that's how you do it. Yeah, that, that was really good. It wasn't brilliant, but yeah, it's, that was good. It didn't make me feel like the Avengers or the Dark Knight, but I was, you know, this is how you do X-Men much more. Third, absolutely terrible. Hated it. We'll be talking about that one very soon. Hated it. Fourth, oh, possibly worse. But it became depressing at this point. It was like, you can't get it right, can you? You really, you've ruined this. You've wrecked it. Fifth one came out. First class, Matthew Vaughan finally at the helm. We were really excited to see it. And then it was really, really good. Still not Avengers level, but really, really good. 
So that gave us hope. And then the Wolverine, which we only saw fairly recently, they've really started up in their game now in terms of release schedule. It used to be like once every three years, and it's now getting to the point where it's once every one year. The Wolverine is not dissimilar to this in that it starts out fairly serious, fairly realistic, and it's like, oh, this isn't bad at all, and then completely collapses like a flan in a cupboard at the end. So that's a quick capsule review version of everything we're about to do in the next few podcasts. <laughs> we should have done that first, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, because it's, it's, it's relevant, because we're having to look back on uh, X-Men incredibly objectively here. It really does become a better film if you take into account what X-Men what First happens. Class achieves what X-Men 2 achieves. Yeah. And the other Marvel films that have have followed on its heels. But I mean, I don't... See, this is the thing. When we sat down to write the notes on this, I don't know if I can be objective about the X-Men. They are too integral to my uh, my adolescence. It's kind of like uh, when Lord of the Rings fans finally saw Lord of the Rings. They're like, oh, God, they've ruined all of these things I've been picturing for all these years. Yeah. 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 Oh, is that what we sound like? Maybe so. <laughs> but um, I was watching a lot of the extra features earlier today, and uh, there was a lot of talk of um, like Halle Berry being all awkward about it and saying, well, a lot of fans wanted to see this, that, and the other, but you can't really do that in a film. It wouldn't be realistic. Uh, Brian Singer also sort of compounding that, saying, I wanted to make it real. Uh, originally, Brian Singer rejected the idea for this film because he said that... Uh, uh, comics were an unintelligent form of literature. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. This is, of course, the guy who made the love letter to uh, uh, Richard Donner's Superman. I, I just, I can't even. <laughs> oh God! It's just, it's such a reductive statement to make. It is. It really is. However, in the interests of honesty and objectivity. When we go back and read the old X-Men comics, especially the 90s stuff we were raised on, they're shit. Oh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that, yeah. They're really we... rubbish. Mm. You, you already reviewed yourself the Chris Claremont, uh, uh, swan song X-Men series, uh, penned I by did. Jim Lee. The, the, uh, initial opening with, uh, the Asteroid M followed by the Omega Red story. It's terrible. It's the one where, uh, it's, it's, it's structured and framed so badly in terms of the fact that you can see what's going on. It's drawn in, in an extremely uh, evocative way, and the characters say what's going on. You don't need to say it if we can see it. It's that the, the, the whole thing staged like a radio play. Like if you closed your eyes and just heard the words, you'd have to picture it in your head. You don't need to. You've got pictures. But if you look at some of the action panels, they're so messy and so confused that people do need to say what's happening because otherwise you wouldn't know. Sometimes. Sometimes. But uh, it, it just it seems like there's a fundamental lack of communication between the writer and the artist. Yes. This is true. But the the one I am terrified of going back and reading again. Dark my, Phoenix Saga? No, no, no. No, I am. I fully accept. That's that Claremont, so that's that, going to feel yeah, like that. It's going to feel like that. But um, no, my favorite issue ever. X-Men 45? Of, yes. With X-Men Rogue and Gambit 45. on the front. Yeah, it's, it's Rogue and Gambit, um, basically how their relationship kind of peaks after the um the crystal wave and she gets certain information out of his head and they have to pick apart the whole um you know what he's done what she's done and all the rest of it crystal wave was with the age of apocalypse if anyone's ever heard of that yes um but i love that issue so so much and i'm scared that if i read it again it will be dire 
I can give you an almost solid gold guarantee that it will. <laughs> but that's the thing. Then, after the X-Men movie came out, that Marvel started easing back on the focus on artists. This would have been sort of early 2000s and getting some real talent into rights. So Brian Michael Bendis, the writer of Powers and uh, Alias, Jessica Jones, he started, that was the Marvel book that he started, something that most people haven't heard of. But in the next few years, when her series comes out on Netflix, everyone will have heard of her. Brian K. Vaughan came in as well. Mark Miller. I may not really like him, but in comparison to the uh, uh, writers who came before, these were perceptive men able to... I can't think of many Marvel female writers. A couple of DC ones, but not Marvel. Able to get people to talk like people talk. Which seems like such a straightforward, well, surely you would. But for decades, comics weren't full of people talking like you and I would talk. No. And uh, even Neil Gaiman wrote some uh, Marvel in the end. Uh, Paul Jenkins hit Marvel really up their game at the beginning of the uh, 21st century. And this was after they'd gone through all the uh, the financial strife. So uh, they've actually earned their continued existence. And they raised their standards, which is absolutely what they should have done. So, yeah, let's talk about Chuck, shall we? Let's. You mentioned that it was a huge win, them getting hold of McKellen and Stewart for these roles. Oh, definitely. The the fact that they were going in with this, you know, we we want this to look serious, we want it to look real, and then they get these two older gentleman actors. British. Exactly. Theatre trained, extremely respected, um, very very high quality actors um, playing these two main roles and it really gives it the weight that it needed to make it feel like it deserved to be taken seriously oh yeah the the scene at the beginning again this is all in retrospect of uh, first class uh, when uh, Charles confronts Eric and Eric says you're still poking around in here Charles you get that immediate clash of wills, but they're they're keeping back from one another, and they're separated by distance and ideology, and it's extremely well-framed. Best part of the entire movie, as far as I'm concerned. It was all downhill from here, this first, <laughs> first few uh, sequences. Patrick Stewart was, of course, the fan favorite uh, tipped to actually play Prof X for many, many years, and so there was a, quite a lot of X-Men Star Trek crossover. Yeah, I, I think they had pretty much every speculative list of, of here's the actors I want to be in an X-Men movie had Patrick Stewart as yeah. Xavier. I mean, you could argue that that's because comic fans lack a little imagination and go, well, be he's bold. bold. And he's bold. But, um, but no, I mean, I think that... How come that... Duncan Goodhue wasn't in the room? <laughs> fair point, yes. Fair point, well made. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I remember seeing um, in, in the X-Men British reprint comic um, on the letters page, somebody had submitted a, a list of actors that they wanted to see playing the roles. Christopher Lambert as Gap. Yeah, Christopher Lambert as Gap. I mean, what on earth? Or Dennis Quaid, just because I heard him do a Cajun accent once and it was it was okay. Yeah. Um, and even they had Patrick Stewart as um, Xavier. So. I once had Clancy Brown as Sabretooth. That wouldn't have been bad. <gasps> like in his oh, I'm yeah. astonished that Brown has never voiced Sabretooth. Yeah. So, yeah, moving on to other characters. We'll, we'll come back to Charles and, and Eric, I'm sure. Uh, Rogue is the first um, young mutant we get introduced to, uh, aside from young Eric. The first time she was ever given a name in the comic, they were very careful to never mention it, but it's Marie. And in the comic, 
Just let me know why you had difficulty getting used to this rogue reduced to her base powers. And explain to the folks at home who maybe weren't reading X-Men in the 90s or haven't watched the X-Men TV show why Rogue was different to a lot of us. Okay, right. So uh, Rogue from the comics, at least the Rogue that I was the most familiar with, because she, she did actually start out in the comics not dissimilar to the way she starts out in this film. Yeah. Um, they had to go back to basics, I think. Exactly. But by the time um, I'd really got into X-Men and by the, certainly by the time I was introduced to this particular character, basically what had happened was her mutant ability... There have been hints and suggestions that it may be psychic in nature, but effectively when she touches somebody, and there has to be a skin-on-skin -skin contact, she absorbs their life force, their energy, their memories. Um, if they're mutants, she absorbs their powers. There is a, a transfer of consciousness from them to her, which usually, particularly if it, if it goes on for too long, leaves them in a very weakened state, um, sometimes even unconscious and potentially close to death. And she, she uses does. it aggressively in combat. She's a thief. She does, yeah. Originally introduced, I think her, her character was very sort of a, a bit shades of grey to start with. She'd run away from home and she was ultimately taken in by Mystique, who at that time was part of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants collective. She was manipulated into using her abilities in support of their evil ends. Was this when they were still called the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants? Yeah. Who calls yourself that? This is like this is where you take the rosy tinted ruby quartz visor spectacles off and look at what the book was really like. The Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Now, Magneto is a surprisingly complex character to have the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants back in the 60s. It doesn't really make sense that someone would write one thing with one hand and the other thing with the other. I wanted to call them the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants to define them as the ones who were evil. Nobody calls themselves evil. Everybody thinks they're righteous, at least if you're trying to write a decent story. I mean, some sociopaths consider themselves to be evil. They don't get groups together. I mean, you, you might get a bunch of goths calling themselves evil something with a tongue-in-cheek. And probably all they do is write poetry anyway. But it sounds so camp now. It sounds so Austin Powers. An evil petting zoo? <laughs> Indeed. So carry on, sorry. So, yeah, so... Mystique, who wore a gerbil skull in her hair. She did. Like Elmira. Elegant. Um, so, uh, yeah, so Rogue was manipulated into using these abilities to uh, take down Ms. Marvel, Carol Danvers. Who will be and coming to the Avengers movies, most definitely, because they need a, a, well, they need a strong female and an analogue for Wonder Woman. I would certainly hope so. And her current incarnation, Captain Marvel, I can highly recommend, by the way. Me too. I've read the first few issues of that uh, particular comic, and it is fantastic. Carol Danvers, significantly in Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes, voiced by Jennifer Hale, doing a full-on Shepard impression. Oh, yes. Um, so, Rogue is attacking... Miss Marvel. Um, You're going around the block on this one. Rogue I know. is Rogue you keep in the interrupting 90s. Me. Um, <laughs> right. So she's so she absorbs all of Miss Marvel's powers um, to the extent that um, Carol Danvers goes into a coma. Mm -hmm. So no and Carol so Danvers in comics for many many years. Indeed. So rather than simply evaporating, which is what normally happens when she absorbs somebody's powers, uh, Ms. Marvel's powers stay with her. Mm. So she, now she can fly. She's practically invulnerable. She's incredibly strong. Yeah. But she still can't 
touch anybody. So she's still having to, to reconcile those elements of her character. But if um, you remember in the 80s, she was sort of like a punk and she was a reclusive and she had like yeah. sort of a jacket on. But she that, was much more like Anna Packin in this. Looking at exactly what they did, especially when Jim Lee started drawing her, they sexed her up. They, they made did. her like a super hot, unbeatable, badass female. There was still, however... A vulnerability to her. Like I said, she stole other people's powers in battle, but it, there was always a price to pay. She would always, they would, she would freak out. Like if she stole Cyclops' power, she'd be like charging about the place, blasting things with her eyes, unable to stop and freaking out. Well, a lot of, of what appealed to me about her was to do with this inability to, uh, to restrain and, and control her powers. I mean, she's effectively, she's a vampire, but she's an unwilling one. She doesn't seek people. I know you said in combat she uses it as an aggressive stealing of other people's powers. In but usually to take wants. people down. Indeed. But rather it, than it, just it, punching them and smashing their skull in. Yeah, but generally speaking, she does not seek people out to absorb. She doesn't need it to live or anything like that. Oh, um, it's important to note, by the way, she was never used in combat in the films at any point. Not properly, no. not the way that we see Rogue. But then neither were any of the children in this. In Iceman this. was in three. Oh, yeah, I suppose further down the line, I mean, she isn't then. Um, so, yeah, so she, her character kind of revolved around this massive guilt that she felt about taking out um, Carol Danvers. Um, she had a And a Cody physical, still, the first boy and, she ever yeah, kissed. Yeah, the first boyfriend thing, which they did carry across into the film. Um, she had this level of physical strength that is certainly was at that time pretty rare um, among female heroes. There was a very high contingent of psychic abilityed women mm. amongst the X-Men. And I have to admit that, yeah, that, that's the, the cadre of characters that I tended to respond to the most. Um, but the, the idea of her having to uh, avoid physical connection so that the intensity of her emotions would not harm others was an essential part of the version of Rogue that I bonded with. And none of that was really there, at least not to the extent, with Anna Packin. And I wasn't massively impressed with her performance either, which kind of really undermined any connection that I was going to feel with that particular character. Um, I mean, you could argue that, that part of the whole um, fear of her own abilities has, has sort of been transferred to Jean. Um it, but that's more, I saw that as more to do with guarding against her own potential, whereas Rogue was very specifically about you have no connection with others. Having to contend with the fact that she had all this strength, but couldn't reconcile it with, with the part of her power that she hated. Mm. Also, to, speaking of sexing up, throughout the 90s, Gambit was horny as hell the whole time for her. He, he wanted this untouchable Southern Belle, and yeah, not to put too fine a point on it, and this is one of the major reasons why uh, there's so many female X-Men fans, Gambit is, in the same way as Jacob in Twilight, super hot. So you've got this constant sexual threesome between the two of them, but in the X-Men films, this is transferred to Rogue and Bobby, this non-threatening Corey type who no one wants to bone. So you've got these two bland-ass characters that you don't actually care about at all. And you're like, will they kiss? Will they not? Do I care? No. <laughs> so, yeah, that um, took the whole idea of Frisson away. And the way they dispose of her character in 3, and in fact, from, from the sounds of it, she's not even in the, uh, the uh, most recent movie. They just they cut her out because she's that unimportant. <laughs> 
So the entire first movie really hangs a lot on her, and then she gets disposed of because she's uninteresting. I think what I found frustrating about it as well was that they used her as the same um, analogue as they had at one point used Kitty Pride in the comics. Mm. The young kid, and uh, Jubilee as well for the, the 90s TV show, um, a young kid who gets involved with this team and you you get to know them through her eyes. So you couldn't argue that they ha- it hadn't been done before in several formats and with other characters as well. But at least with the TV show, they had a different character. Like I say, a lot of the film hangs on Rogue and her relationship with Logan. I think Anna Paquin has still yet to impress us as much as she did way back when she was in the piano. Some actors Never need get away to from be... that first performance. No, no, no. I was going to say they need to be in the hands of the right director yeah. to really bring out what they're capable of. So moving on to the aforementioned Logan... Now, this is where the entire movie and, indeed, the movie series hung. If they got this wrong, if they fucked up Wolverine, maybe Marvel would be dead in the water. So you'll be happy to know that Grace Scott didn't get the job, even though they did do. he got through initial casting. Uh, the only reason he didn't retain it was because it conflicted with his work on Mission Impossible 2, a terrible film. And so Dugway went off and did that and then was completely forgotten about. And Hugh Jackman turned up and was made an absolute star, and rightfully so. He is fan-bloody-tastic in this film. For a breakout performance, like, this is his first proper uh, performance. Before this, he was in the musical of Oklahoma with Maureen Lipman. <laughs> Can you imagine Wolverine singing Sorry with the Fringe on top? Yes. Disturbingly, I can. Chicks and ducks and geese better scurry when I take you out in the sorry. When I take you out in the sorry with a fringe on top. Watch that fringe and see how it flutters when I drive them high stepping strutters. Nosy pokes all peek through their shutters and their eyes will pop. The wheels are yellow, the upholstery's brown, the dashboard's genuine leather. With us and glass curtains, you can roll right down in case there's a change in the weather. Two broad side lights winking and blinking. Ain't no finer rig, I'm a thinking. You can keep your rig if you're thinking that I get a swap for that shiny little sorry with a To get the lads on board, you've got that cage fighting match at the beginning where he, like, he punches a man's fist and then headbutts him. And you're like, yes! Straight away. This guy is immensely, extremely hard. And then you've got the guys. But he's also incredibly hot, so you've got the girls too. And I use, of course, the most basic definitions of guys and girls here for marketing purposes. Also, he gets kicked in the balls and it clanks. Yeah, implying that he has balls of steel. Mystique does that again later, but we'll talk about that later. 
So yeah, I mean, like I said, it sounded extremely shallow when I was talking about Gambit before, but they were doing that full on for Wolverine here. It's possible they didn't put Gambit in because they didn't want to distract you from Wolverine. <laughs> Possibly so. Um, I mean, the, what I really like about the... But that's not how it works. You put in two hot guys, then you get twice as many girls. You put in multiple hot guys and, you know, choice. Preferably some hot females. But at the same yeah. time, I can't fault them for it. Because that's the mistake they made in the 90s. They chucked so many hot people in so many episodes where they were just hanging out by the pool and everyone's in a swimsuit for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) And they forgot to actually add story. Well, I mean, they had story, but it was all things like alien kidnap and... um, uh, And and Jubilee trying to win at volleyball. And the Running Man game show and Soviet ex-super soldiers. (laughs) And ex-babies! I say Soviet ex-super soldiers, the subject of the Winter Soldier. <laughs> yeah. They got this this side of things sexy enough. The unfortunate side effect is that Cyclops, Storm, Jean, Rogue, everyone else in the entire movie is not at all sexy. But that didn't have to be an unfortunate side effect. Carry on. And it's not as if they weren't trying to make them sexy. Have you seen the leather trousers Halle Berry wears? Yeah, yeah. We'll talk about Storm it's, a bit. It's just that the sheer raw magnetism that is Hugh Jackman is hard to compete with. Or as he is referred to by Mr. Mark Kermode, huge action. Yes. That's what we're calling him from now on. So huge action turns up. And I've actually put this in here as a Tony Stark-style redefining of the character. Yeah. Uh because it's it's so easy to think of you know think of Wolverine right now and you're thinking of Hugh Jackson, but before this, I'm not. I'm thinking of Steve Blum. <laughs> okay, good for you. But before this, Cathal <laughs> J. Dodd in the X Men cartoon really nailed it because that was basically Wolverine for many many years in the comic. I go where I wanna go. A most magnificent homage, is it not? Oh yeah. Maybe a little too magnificent. You know, about Storm's tribe worshipping her when she was a kid. All that goddess stuff messed up her head. But Xavier worked her through all that. Maybe. But take a good look around. I ain't so sure this place is as great for her as she thinks. Hey, pal. We're buddies of your new queen. Know where a guy can get a burger and fries around here? Please. I'm sorry, but I must return to my work at once. He seemed very concerned about that robot guard. He wasn't concerned, Hank. He was shaking at his boots. Get your nose ready, Logan. We may have some local slime to sniff out before our visit is over. I'm the best I am at what I do, and what I do ain't pretty. If they didn't want to get cut, they shouldn't have given me claws. And all he was just so grumpy and so in the face of everybody all the time. And because he was always drawn purposefully little it seemed like he had little man syndrome so he was picking fights with people all the time to prove how tough he was now they've established he's nigh on unkillable he actually doesn't have to do that so much he's more of a noble quiet samurai he broods more and so much of that is informed on by Hugh Jackman's performance he changed who Wolverine was to the world but rather than uh, where uh, with Tony Stark, they took a fairly uh, sedate, boring character and just ramped up the stylization and turned him into Robert Downey Jr.'s manic performance, uh, redefined Tony Stark to the point where I can't read Tony Stark in regular comic continuity any, anymore. He's not interesting enough. Um, because he's not Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. 
they kind of toned him down a bit for this version, and he says a lot more with looks than he has to with words. Yeah, he do, he does a lot of showing rather than telling. Mm. Um, that there is very little exposition in his his character arc, which is really good. Um, he chews out his lines in, with brevity rather than going into long, long Batman style. Yeah. I'm darkness, no parents. No <laughs> dark things. <laughs> Indeed, but I mean that the the idea of the the samurai element of it, you've, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. It was something that occurred to me when he was in the truck after leaving the bar. Yeah, basically that moment of right, okay, that's this period of my life done with. Where am I going to go next? Yeah, it's that, a ronin. The, the He's ronin. Toshiro Mifune. Exactly. Going from place to place, not Getting really... adventures like Kung Fu. Well, yeah, but not not really moving forward, not achieving anything, yeah. because he's not forming any relationships. He has and that's, no roots. That, yeah, and that's kind of what this film is built around, the idea of him hmm. um, forming those roots, forming well, those connections. Unlike the uh, comics, uh, but they pretty much went back to the roots of all the characters... Uh, in the comics and started them from scratch again. With Wolverine, they had a great deal of what was filled in after he was introduced. Uh, you know, the uh, uh, Chris Claremont, Frank Miller series, which the Wolverine is based on, isn't particularly fantastic, but it did give more scope to the character. And then the ongoing Wolverine series from 88, which was much more personal, which meant that you could start the character with some scope rather than just going from for the straightforward. Like so many of the other characters in this film are not fleshed out. And in fact are never fleshed out. And that is one of the greatest tragedies of the X-Men series so far. Some of the most premier mutants have not been given any substance. Especially the ones who have been picked because they look cool. Yeah. The way he's put forward in this and the way he interacts with the other characters, they've avoided the superhero stereotype, you know, because he doesn't have this whole protect the little guy um, he doesn't seek out heroic situations. He's not a goody two shoes. No, he's he's not looking to punch robbers or rapists in back alleys. He's in. He's not driven. Exactly. Um, you know, he's in cage fights trying to make enough money for his next tank of fuel. Yeah. We can relate to that more because that's closer to the drifting that most of us feel in real life. We don't really. Mo- most of us don't feel driven to beat up rapists. Indeed. But at the same time, they do manage to create a, um, a fairly archetypal masculine image of perfection. I know that, that he is not everybody's ideal man, whether, whether that's somebody who is a masculine person looking to emulate that or whether that's somebody who is, um, drawn to masculine people who is responding to that in, on a, a, a sexual level or whatever. But there are elements to his character in this that I think seem almost like if we could choose how men would behave in that situation, that's what it would be. He is very protective of Rogue. You know, you've got this, she throws herself in his truck because she needs a ride. I think we can all guess where the average, I really need a ride in your truck, sir, what can I do to get you to help me and take me where I need to go. Um, there's a way that story usually turns out, but it doesn't in this one because he, his instincts are protective and, and he's looking out for her. Um, and at the end as well, when he 
makes it clear to Jean that he does feel very strongly for her. He makes it equally clear that he is expecting and certainly demanding nothing of her. Um, you know, you don't get him sitting in a corner whining about being friend zoned for the entirety of X Men Two. Um, so no, he those goes off elements... to Canada to brood. Well, yeah, indeed. Hey, that's not necessarily a bad response. But yeah, so those those elements to his character, I thought were after um... stealing her boyfriend's bike. That's that's fair. Very grown that's up. Fair, I think, yeah. Um, but those that made the character certainly very appealing to me. And actually, now that I mentioned it, uh, he since he starts off being incredibly savagely hard at the beginning, uh, the bit where uh, Rogue accidentally touches his face when she well she goes in to see him at night, which is a bad idea to start with. Dude has bad dreams. She starts taking his power and uh, Jackman has to perform that he is both in pain and astonished at what's going on and also freaking out that he may just have killed a young girl who was he was feeling very protective of. It's a fantastic little performance and it's so tender and so he's like a boy at that point. So he goes to completely the other end of the spectrum, and you see who Logan is way deep down, this terrified little boy, which comes back to origin, something that I'm going to be talking about during the Wolverine movie. And that automatically makes the average person be able to relate to him a lot more than they'd be able to relate to, I'm the best I am at what I do. Hugh Jackman took ice-cold showers every morning of filming in order to help get into character. This tradition started when jumping into the showers at 5am before realising there was no hot water. Shocked awake but not wanting to wake his sleeping wife, he gritted his teeth and bore it before realising that this mindset, wanting to scream and lash out at something but having to hold it in, was the mentality that Wolverine is in constantly. He's taken cold showers for every Wolverine film ever since. And I would imagine his cameo in uh, First Class. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so to Jean Grey, now this was a big deal for you. Uh, just a little word on her name first. She's been an oddball X-Man for many years now. Her initial team name was Marvel Girl, a badge that doesn't exactly describe what her mutant gifts really do, like Iceman or Angel. Since then, Marvel themselves have clashed with DC over the Captain Marvel name and coined their own Ms. Marvel. So when the time came for the now womanly Ms. Grey to re-enter the scene, she didn't take the obvious Marvel woman. Closer to the movie's release, Jean became host to the Phoenix Force again, more on that when we cover X-Men 3, and went by the name Phoenix, one that most definitely does suit her. But in the meantime, she fought alongside the X-Men, going by her given birth name of Jean Grey. This is very unusual for a Marvel mutant. Being named just Jean Grey gave her the implied persona of someone who worked at the mansion but wasn't really combat ready. Kind of like Xavier Staff but not a de facto team member. This assumption wasn't entirely without merit either. She tends to take a support role rather than to take point. Uh, to Magneto, your call sign is like the shedding of a slave name and taking one for your own. In Xavier's eyes, it keeps your identity hidden, but also projects a desired persona to the world, explaining, clearly or not, who you are and what you do, exactly like an online handle. Therefore, Jean Grey is like one of those people who wears their real-world identity on the sleeve of their internet identity. 
in the grand scheme of things, this decision should have been a lot more significant in both the comics and the movies, as it plays into how publicly prominent Jean allows herself to be. However, in actuality, it just dates back to the 90s X-Men, when various unimaginative writers didn't really know what to do with this character. Jean's a major, major character for you, isn't she? She is. And I think, to an extent, I was disappointed with this version of her. The whole way through the series, does she get better into, or...? Yes. I know you hate three. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, she does kind of get better in two, but then it kind of all falls off the cliff. So, um. Shitting uh, itself on the way down. <laughs> oh, God, yes. Um, I mean, the, the way Famke Jansen plays her, I mean, I, I do like Famke Jansen as an actress. She has a tendency to be a little bit of a one trick pony. Um, in the sense that uh, probably the two roles that she's most well known for are um, Xenia on a top. On a top. In um, GoldenEye. Um, <laughs> woman I trust your stay with sex. on a top of things. Huh? She's a walking um, pun. Yeah, A I know. smutty joke. <laughs> um, and then uh, I can't remember the name of the teacher um, in the faculty. Miss Burke? But again, it, it was play up the sexy. I mean, she starts off portrayed as quite sort of dowdy and stereotypical librarian-ish. Um, but then the idea is that that's not really her and that she comes out of herself and becomes a lot more sexually aggressive. Um, now, that's not Jean, certainly not at this stage. And the way she puts her across, she does have that uncertainty that that was a big part of the character in the 90s, which, yes, you can put down to unimaginative writers not knowing what to do with her. Um, but I did quite like that element of her, the idea that she was quite fearful of her abilities because they were, in a way, too big for her to handle, that her, um, her telekinetic abilities and, and certainly her telepathic abilities had come upon her quite young and had been very overwhelming for her um, at a young age. And that was something that got explored in the comics later on to, to quite good effect, I think. They had been so strong that Charles basically went in and cut certain things off. Did he uh, cut them off or put walls up? Uh, he, yeah, he blocked them off so that she wouldn't be completely unable to deal with them. And that's something that they touch on in 3. Her fear of what she is potentially capable of seems in this to almost be encouraged by both Charles and Scott but it's in kind of such a subtle way that it's not entirely clear whether that's deliberate or not if that makes sense yeah. it's only one or two throwaway lines um, there's um, a point where she talks about her powers being potentially dangerous and Scott answers for her um, it's not entirely clear whether the implication is that it's dangerous for other people or whether it's dangerous for her, but it does seem pretty clear that he is reinforcing, you know, don't do that, sweetie, because somebody might get hurt, which is a terribly patronising way to talk to an adult woman, especially an adult woman that you intend to spend the rest of your life with. There was another point that I noticed when... Um, Storm and Scott get sent off to go and find Rogue. Uh, Jean is basically appears to be confined to the house. She doesn't go out to get involved in that. The first time we see her out and about, she's sat in the passenger seat of the car next to Charles. Passenger seat, driver's seat. Driver's no seat. I don't think you can get to the pedals. 
I'm just trying to remember which way round they were and then thinking, no, it's American cars. It's a but Bentley. Yeah. <laughs> they, I'm pretty sure they make left-hand drive Bentleys. Somebody can correct me on that. I know nothing about cars. Yeah, so she's she's only out and about when she's with a, one of her male protectors. Yeah, she doesn't um, do her You know, own. she goes out with Cyclops when the whole team go, but she doesn't get a lot of uh, opportunity to to really be who she is or or seem a full member of the team. Now, again, that is something that they do expand on more in two, and we'll talk about that more in two and shout about it when we get to three. But, um, but yeah, I, I did feel, again, a bit disappointed with the fact that this was a character that I connected with very strongly and they seem to have chucked out of the window most of the baby. She was a victim of the fact that they had a lot of... I mean, they, they had more X-Men to deal with and to characterise in this than they did with the Avengers. Think about it. You've you got your, uh, your six core Avengers plus Nick Fury. In this, you've got all the X-Men plus the Brotherhood as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the kids. And the kids. There just isn't time. Plus, you had to introduce the entire world from the get-go. Whereas in Avengers, you've had, they've had five movies to introduce it. So they they just had so much on their plate straight away. And it was like, look, let's just focus on Logan, Rogue, Charles and Eric. So she was one of the casualties. You had a theory on the, how there are several real-world conditions that people can experience, which are actually quite well paralleled in uh, the X-Men. And which was your one for uh, the telepaths? I was going to talk about this later when we talked about the Senate hearings. But one of the most important things about the X-Men as a... Um, as an, an IP, as a story, is the comparison between uh, minority communities and the way that they are uh, othered and rejected by the mainstream. One thing that really impressed me about this was they didn't abandon that. It would have been very easy to make these guys the cool ones, the ones who are, um, you know, everybody thinks they're fantastic, everybody thinks they're wonderful, but that would really have lost what the X-Men are. Um, and one of the comparisons, it actually hit me when we were watching the Wolverine and the X-Men series the other day, um, because Forge was in it. And obviously Forge is, is quite obviously a, a technically disabled character. He only has one leg, but he has a very effective technological prosthetic leg, which compensates for that fact. Yeah. So... Although he is, uh, there, there is no obvious drawback that he has to contend with. You don't see him dealing with having to take off his metal leg to go and have a shower, which is obviously something that he's going to have to do. Um, but it, it does mean that somebody who has a very visual disability is incorporated into the day-to-day life of, of being a hero and being part of this hero team. Charles, one of the most famous wheelchair users in comic book history, I think it would be fairly safe to say. Yeah. Um, and then you've got also um, some of the other characters that aren't necessarily... Uh, obviously subject to physical restrictions, but practically they do have to contend with some of the issues. Cyclops, without his visor, he is functionally blind. He can't open his eyes because he might kill people. That also uh, leaves him extremely closed off from the rest of the world in that he literally can't see the rest of the world without being a danger to it. Absolutely. And everything is constantly filtered for him. 
there's no other way around it. You've got Wolverine, who's been subject to this immense mental trauma in his history. Uh, he's suffering from uh, threads of, of what could quite easily be um, interpreted as post-traumatic stress um, of, of some form or another. I think he's um, got post-traumatic stress on top of everything else he's got, but uh, the real-world analogue is uh, just extremely deep post-traumatic stress. Yeah, and and this this um, life of anguish and harm uh, that that he suffered, his mutant ability has caused this to be the case for him because his brain heals too fast; he can't process things. Trauma happens to him, and then it scars over before he's really had chance to to process it. And that's part of why his memories are all shot to pieces. Yeah. Um, and, uh, this yeah, is something so, so, that they fundamentally didn't understand in uh, X-Men Origins Wolverine. We'll talk about that later. But the, they introduced an adamantium bullet to wipe away the events because people won't understand that Wolverine's brain simply won't remember this stuff. It can't. Yeah. Indeed. Um, and although this wasn't something that was really shown visually until um, two bordering on three... Um, the sensory overload that Jean experiences when she opens up her, her telepathic gates, if you like, um, it did seem to me to have similarities with certain autism spectrum disorder um, sufferers have some symptoms which kind of resemble that, that, that when they just move around in the world that you and I experience as you know, as fairly normal, there's this assault of too much noise, too much visual stimulation, too much sensory input that they can't filter and they can't control. Imagine being stuck in Mardi Gras your entire life. Yeah, that was something that, again, I, I could see some parallels with that. Although, again, it's never really made particularly explicit. They're not, you know, nobody stands there with a stick saying these are direct parallels for the issues that people with certain disabilities have to contend with but i like the way it's woven into just the everyday dealing with a life and b the plot of the story Cyclops is another essential character that nobody knows how to write. I have seen Cyclops written well once, and he was written extremely well by Joss Whedon in the Astonishing X-Men series. To do this, Whedon actually takes away his powers, and Scott is able to look at the world without presenting a constant danger to it. But also, he's no longer a gun. That's what he was. Everything about him, Whedon breaks him down to his core character, has been that since he was 12 years old, he's been holding back with his eyes scrunched tight, and he is never able to let go on that. Part of the reason that he and Wolverine clash so much is that Scott sees Wolverine letting go over and over again, and he's jealous. He's the one who has to be the grown-up. He's the one who has to be the daddy. He's the one who has to command everybody. He's got to hold it together all the time. Not only hold himself together, but hold everybody else together. To a degree, he's the wrong person to lead the X-Men. You don't put your big gun at the head of the party. 
and have him giving the orders. That is your damage dealer. He's not your paladin. He's not your shaman. Storm should have led the X-Men. From the moment she was introduced in the 70s, she should have become the de facto leader. They even fought over it in the 80s, and she won. And she did become the leader of the gold team? Yeah. When they split? Yeah. She's more than capable of that. It's not that Scott is incapable of it, but the pressure and the burden of leadership for his entire adult life has meant that he is unable to come to terms with who he is, and he is unable to actually deal with it. And it takes him getting into a relationship with Emma Frost to actually address this. There is none of this in the movies. They don't know what to do with him in the first one. He's just there to present an obstacle for Logan, and because everyone knows who Cyclops is. In the second one, he's just there to be another obstacle between Logan and Jean, and Jean and Logan, and for someone else so that Jean can have her story with this person, and someone to mourn Jean when she goes. And in the third one, they know so little of what to do with him, they dispose of him off-screen. Where's Scott? Oh, he's dead. All right, okay, move on. Is he dead, though? And then I got to the end of the film and was like, wow, Scott really is dead. The the actual real world story of that was that James Marsden had other stuff to do and they just went, oh, let's get rid of him. See, such an essential character to the core of the X-Men, they couldn't be bothered to replace him when the actor decided they had other stuff to do. Didn't do a death scene more properly. So that's it. He is one of the casualties of the series, and if and when they reboot or when they get Scott back in the story, for the love of Christ, do it properly. He can be a really interesting character, but it takes you, uh, somebody who understands the character and somebody willing to give him the patience. There was actually a scene put together at the beginning uh, that was going to explain a bit about how uh, uh, Scott first destroyed part of his school from the toilets, which ended up kind of being put into X-Men Origins Wolverine, uh, but they got rid of it. They even started filming the scene in X-Men 2, and they used the toilet set in the end. That, I think it was Mystique. But it was going to be put into the special edition DVD of the X-Men, but they decided against it. And yeah, so yeah, Scott is a a casualty of it, and and they have effectively looked at what Scott has represented in the comics that they read, and the cartoons that they saw, and said, he's a bit of a prick, really. And that's who he is to them. But you have to give him the capacity and the space and the story to explore why he's a prick. So, yeah, the, uh, there was one really great line in there that Joss Whedon actually wrote because he did a pass on the script. They discarded the Joss Whedon script because it was funny. They, I'll say that again. They discarded the Joss <laughs> Whedon script because it was funny. Have we established why Marvel didn't make a great deal of money in the early 2000s? Having said that, the makers of Alien Resurrection did not discard Joss Whedon's script. <laughs> So he may not have been that good a writer in those days. Either way, he then went on to write some of the best X-Men stories in comics. So this guy knows his X-Men. And it's a damn shame that they didn't give him the chance to write, say, oh, I don't know, just top of my head, because it was based on his fucking comic, X-Men 3. Uh, At the time, he was busy writing and being fired from Wonder Woman. Because DC don't know shit either. (laughs) Anyway, the, the line is, how do we know you're Logan? You're a dick. And uh, that was kept in. And and that, you know, it is hilarious, but at the same time, that's about all they could really get a bead on Scott. 
Since recording this, I've been reading more recent X-Men comics, and a lot of mileage has been made of Scott's defection over to Magneto's side, brought on by various emotional breakdowns and reconfiguring of ideals over the years, even positioning him not only as Eric's successor in leading a mutant revolution, but making him the modern-day ideological Eric figure for the rest of the X-Men. Uh, you had issues with his uh, powers and abilities. I had an issue with the fact that his visor looks stupid and he wears it to the station and then Toad takes it off stupid, his head yes. with uh, with his tongue. Just wear your sunglasses. People yeah, won't you're look out in at public. you. Look relatively normal, please. Um, it, it's the... This is one of those things of uh, a movie's internal logic not existing or going to pot. Um it, it had already been demonstrated by the scene at the station that Cyclops' control over his optic blasts was not that refined. Um, Apparently he could so, just close his eyes for a while, but eventually his optic blast will burn through his eyelids. Well, there's that. that that's an element. How does he sleep? He wears ruby quartz contacts? I still don't understand how that stops it burning through his eyelids. He sleeps with his eyes open. Okay. Um, so, I don't know. Uh, the, the point of the visor is that he's got a little pressure point in his glove, which allows him to fire off his visor without touching it. However, yeah. in the film, he has to touch it. Ergo, he may as well just have worn the sunglasses and not look like a total knob end. Also, yeah, hang on a minute. The, the burning through his own eyelids, he'd have to wear the contacts all the time. Otherwise, every time he blinked, it's he'd burn his own down. eyelids off. Look, Stanley came up with the power, okay? It doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. Why would but nature choose Scott to basically have no eyelids? It may. Why would, it they, why would nature turn him into an enormous gun? You could sit down and puzzle over some of these mutant abilities until the cows come home and they would make no sense. You have the ability but... to fart time. <laughs> oh, God. That's Going a Grant Morrison one. It's <laughs> a business producing time turners. Yeah, so he, he doesn't have that refined a control over his optic blast. So why does he risk Jean's life using them to shoot snot off her face? For those who can't quite remember this, Toad gauzes it in uh, Jean Grey's face, close range, and Jean goes, like Frank Drebin with a towel and in his face. she's suffocating. I do understand that it's quite an urgent thing. So if you had a magnet, still- would you shoot it off her face? Yeah. Because that's what we're talking about here. Would it, he doesn't even really attempt to chip it off. No. Also, just, what mucus hardens that fast? It is a nut slag. It is mucus. It is mucus. Um, but he, he later on, see, this was the thing. I was like, but surely at the station? But okay, all right, fair enough. Maybe he's tweaked the controls a little bit. But then later on, he says explicitly he can't use them to shoot the machine in case he hits Rogue. That's only a plot contrivance to get Wolverine to save the day. Yeah. Your powers work exactly how we write them, Scott. Indeed. Hey. And as we have established, some people who write things that we love a lot also do this same thing. I, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and guess that the comics were dreadfully inconsistent over the uh, 40 odd years in between Inception and X-Men I would imagine so right so there are also several hidden mutants at the school who weren't really named all that much I think 
Jubilee may get named, but yeah, the girl in the uh, yellow jacket with the hoop earrings is Jubilee, who I miss. I really liked her in the uh, uh, the, the uh, X Men books in the nineties, even though she was kind of an annoying mole rat. And um, you know, she's she's just in the uh, uh, TV series to be the Harry Potter person to be told all about mutants and stuff, and to be yeah your touchstone for all the kids. And Rogue's fulfilling that particular factor, but I'd have preferred. Well, frankly, I'd have preferred uh, Ellen Page playing um, Kitty Pride from the get-go. Yes, absolutely. But, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a, another one of the three actresses playing Kitty Pride is in this one, uh, Shadowcat, or Sprite, uh, as she was also called. Uh, Colossus is also in there, although, of course, he never turns into a big metal dude. And uh, then you get the first of two actors playing Pyro and um, Sean Ashmore playing Iceman. In his non-threatening Corey type, I've got nothing to say about him. Nothing whatsoever. He's a nice guy. That's about it. He's all right. You're right. But Bobby's supposed to be kind of like Peter Parker. He's supposed to be a jokester. He's supposed to be fun. He's supposed to be a bit immature. And they turned him into this sort of like, you know, little teen heartthrob, like a Justin Bieber guy. (laughs) Not like Justin Bieber now, though. Mm. The uniforms. We've got to talk about the uniforms. Now, we do. We're told, oh, they're bad. We're told one thing in all of the extra features, which is, oh no, we had to make them realistic. No, 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 no. They wouldn't wear yellow spandex. You know, everyone's saying they should be wearing the comic uniforms. We couldn't do that. It wouldn't look real. These need to look what people would actually wear, you know, if they were like a, among us already. But then we see another. If we look carefully at uh, how they're moving, and in the uh, in the extra features, there's a bit where they first approach that little wall they have to jump over. It's a foot and a half high. They couldn't get their legs up. They can't move in those stiff-ass pieces of shit costumes. They can't breathe in those costumes. Those are shit costumes. They look terrible. Everybody looks stiff and uncomfortable. They're made of thick-ass leather. It's great if you go flying off a motorbike and it stops you ripping up your elbows on the pavement. But if you actually want to fight, like Wolverine fights, don't wear those. Wolverine would be better fighting naked than wearing those things. They are basically the modern equivalent of armour. Yeah, it's like they're wandering around in this big, thick leather suit of armour, but they don't... Armour has a practical application. It is built for a purpose. And if you're fighting in armour, it's to protect you. Those are for riding motorbikes. And they would go, oh, you couldn't wear all the bright spandex. It wouldn't look right. I give you Steve Rogers in The Avengers. Maybe not so hot on the cowl, but the rest of his costume looks pretty fucking good. And uh, Steve Rogers in uh, Captain America Winter Soldier looks absolutely spot on. Steve Rogers in uh, the Captain America movie. There is a way of making things out of canvas and elements of leather. Some, a, a yeah, way to make an entirely practical costume. Yeah, but so far, the way to make an entirely practical costume look good seems to be put Chris Evans in it. <laughs> <laughs> that is also a good point. They have double standards. Also, from a visual perspective, you lose the ability to distinguish the characters from one another. Absolutely. They just become a gang. Black leather is not it's it's difficult to keep clean, it's expensive, and those outfits are so tight. Yeah. Every time anybody goes up in a harness because they having to they're having to fly, you can see exactly where the harness is attached. Yeah. 
is of course uh, they're they're riffing on the Matrix because of course everyone else was wandering around in there all dressed in black. However, the outfits in the Matrix aren't all leather. They're wearing fairly, especially Neo, fairly practical outfits for fighting in. That is true, and they all customise them to be appropriate to them personally. Yeah. So yeah, the the outfits in in this first one are terrible, and they don't get much better as time goes by. Uh, first class, it works perfectly because uh, they've got the they, they they're like pilots. They're like yeah, they're, they're flight suits. They look actually like what well, they're they're lighter. They breathe. They look like you could spring about in them and punch people, fly about in them. And of course, Wolverine in uh, in his solo movies gets to just wear jeans and a vest, and sometimes not even that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that jacket. So uh, uh, straight after this, uh, Grant Morrison's new X-Men came out and everyone was wearing sort of jackets and uh, and jeans. Uh, you know, it's still adorned with X's, but jackets, jeans, T-shirts actually work really well as costumes. And it's astonishing that they never really went for that. You don't have... Uh, obviously, if it looks stupid and they're wearing bright leotards, if you actually put the the Wolverine costume from the 90s with the cowl on a bloke, it would look gormless. It would look so stupid. And so, like, Hugh Jackman would be like, seriously, you want me to wear this? But there is a happy medium between a really bland... It's both impractical and ugly. It's the worst of both worlds. Yeah. At least have one of the two. You know, make it look really splendid and fantastic, but actually be kind of impractical in real life. Or make it really practical, but not quite so, you know, just, but you can reach a happy medium. Let's think of other superheroes, because there's been millions of them, other superheroes who actually wear a decent look. Superman in uh, Man of Steel. That looks like a decent costume. Spider-Man in all versions of Spider-Man. They proved you can have the bright colours and the spandex and still look pretty cool. I think um, mostly they, they just made the films feel very self-conscious. Like they wanted to look cool and they didn't want to be laughed at. Well, yeah, hence the what would you prefer yellow spandex. Yeah. It, you know, hey, look, we've updated. Yeah, well done. Uh, another reason why I really wasn't keen uh, initially, and astonishingly, as much as I love him as Gandalf, I did not love Ian McKellen immediately as uh, Magneto. Possibly because the Magneto I'd grown up with in the 90s was a lot more of a sort of a, an imposing, sort of muscular type of figure, and, and I felt I reckoned on him less as an old man. That's by the by. But his actual costume was kind of underwhelming. It's kind of like a suit. There's a, a bit... Um, in the again the behind the scenes stuff where he's sort of arguing with uh, the the costumers and he's saying well it is more of a bucket that he wears on his head and they're like well it's, if you if you got a bucket you won't be able to see your face again X Men First Class brought into reality the actual Magneto helmet and they did it so perfectly it's it's an artifact it looks absolutely fantastic and they could have stuck that on him in the first place. But they were too skittish about it. They didn't want to be too like the comics. They they seemed to be going out of their way to distance themselves from the comics. It took a while for it to rotate back around. And then everyone seems to be striding around in these big kiss boots, like these big buffalo boots, especially Sabretooth, but also Cyclops. And that was so that he was slightly taller than Wolverine. Because to begin with, they were like, hang on. Well, actually, Hugh Jackman's six foot two. He's a really tall guy. But as we've already established, you didn't really have to get exactly like 
the way Wolverine was described in the comics to not only bring the character to life, but to redefine them. Mm. So yeah, everyone striding around these great big stupid boots actually looks more wobbly and more uncertain and, and less, everyone, everyone seems so uncomfortable in costume. And that added to the TV movie stylings of this. Around this time, uh, a TV show called Mutant X came out, and it looked about the same. This horrible, grotty, ratty, creaky, like sort of thrown together, cheap ass. So it was, I think it was like 75 million this film cost. Mm. Which is like, it's, it's minuscule by today's standards of superhero movies. And you feel it when you're watching it. It's a very underwhelming movie in terms of scale. You homo sapiens and your guns. That's enough, Eric. Let them go. Why not come out where I can see you, Charles? What do you wonder for? Can't you read my mind? What now? Save the girl. You'll have to kill me, Charles. And what will that accomplish? Let them pass that law and they'll have you in chains with a number burned into your forehead. It won't be that way. Then kill me and find out. Huh? Then release me. Press your luck, Charles. I don't think I can stop them all. Still unwilling to make sacrifices. That's what makes you weak. Okay, so Mystique, another character that I had initial problems with, but were many of which were fixed with X-Men First Class. She's a very smug character in this. She is. And two. And which three. is not a bad thing. If, if they did one thing wrong, and I have to admit, I am not wildly keen on the look, but I can understand why they went that way. They, they, I think I'm guessing they wanted to make her more visually interesting than just smooth skinned casting somebody who a model yeah who was obviously hired because of the way she looked and not for any other reason which i mean you could argue that female actors in hollywood really struggle to get hired without their looks being in consideration at all but look what get somebody who's got some idea of how to portray a character Look what Jennifer Lawrence ultimately did with the character when she was finally given some meat. Yeah. I mean, she's, Mystique is kind of a supporting character in the comics anyway, um, with the exception of a, a, a handful of storylines. She's not usually a central villain. Um, so playing the support role in this did kind of make sense. What it really comes down to, you can sum it up in that fight with Wolverine. Ugh. It is a very bad fight. Even if you discount 
the fundamental problem with it, which is that Mystique against Wolverine would be over very, very quickly and she would be dead. It's a bad fight. It's terribly choreographed. Again, they're going, we've got to be like the Matrix. Everyone's about the martial arts. Yeah, but it's intercut with... There's so many fights going on at that point. You can't really concentrate on any one of them. Um, There is no impact at all. Felt from any of the blows in that fight. There's one point where she does this cartwheel over his arm. When she lands, there's no sound. Yeah, because she's on wires. When her feet hit the floor, there's no sound. But you could add the sound. Exactly. That's what you do. Yeah. But you still wouldn't see it. hitting things. Oh, and when her hand hits him, it shouldn't clank. She's not made of metal. Yeah. When you hit metal with flesh, it doesn't clank. Just when you watch it again next time, folks, just think to yourself, as it's going through, broken foot, broken foot, broken calf, broken foot, broken foot, and then she turns around, spins around, blah, 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 broken everything, because he has an adamantium skeleton, extremely hard, extremely dense. She's a naked woman fighting a man with razors in his arms. Someone with an innate ability to fight like a savage animal who's also been trained to fight with the special forces. He is a born killer and she has no chance whatsoever. And this fight goes on for way too long and Wolverine seems flummoxed by her. I think they were trying to present a badass female for all the girls to be like, yeah, Mystique, and she's like an anti-hero because that seemed to pervade throughout the entire uh, series. Yes, and the way that eventually came out in first class, if they'd had that mystique from the word go, not even necessarily Jennifer Lawrence, but if they'd had that character in mind from the word go, I think that would have been a lot stronger. It would have been a lot more well-rounded. You get a glimmer of it in this when she says to Kelly, you're the reason why I was afraid to go to school as a child. But that's it. There it was, gone. And the rest of the time, she's so smug, like I said, that she's sort of... The bit when she's walking around the mansion, think about what really would be going through Mystique's head at that point. I'm going to get caught, 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 they're going to fucking kill me. And yet she's sort of grinning to herself, and then she does, like, she turns into Charles Xavier's head, and, like, you, she fools an optical scanner. Now, I was thinking about this. I was thinking, like, well, surely, like, a, a professional voice artist could make themselves sound like somebody for a, 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 an audio, a voice scanner. But you can't really... I can't even get into the, the mindset of someone able to recombine the molecules in their own eye to make it look like the eye of someone they can't see. And we find out later she had a very, very uh, long-standing relationship with Charles. But, of course, they didn't know that then. No. So that's, that's not there. Um, but she is... Her shape changed abilities are basically used as a MacGuffin. It's it's the mask in the Mission Impossible yeah, film. The whole way through the series, it's, it was like, aha, it, it was Mystique. It's Polyjuice Potion. Yeah, they even do it with uh, Kelly at the end. It was like, aha, he was Mystique. But yeah, she has her cat-like reflexes and Matrix-like abilities to fight. Well, but she's a, she's a total fucking Mary Sue the whole way through. Well, she would be if she had any lines to speak of or character to speak of. I don't of. think you necessarily need to. Um, I mean, if you think about it, Dolph Moore was a, a, a Gary Sue. He was just such a badass that he, he had no weaknesses apart from the inability to uh, judge when the high ground was important. 
See, I don't think that quite qualifies for the, the Mary Sue, Gary Sue thing. Huh? That there needs to be an element of their character that makes everybody go, gosh, you're so wonderful and I just want to be you because you're so awesome. Oh, okay. I retract that statement then. You have put here in uh, the notes, it was the statue with the shifty eyes. Yeah. Because <laughs> of that bit where they walk past... And the statue goes, nah, nah, nah. Yeah. Why would she open her eyes at that point? Why would there be any need for her to open her eyes at that stage? Just so that we know who she is. Yes. To celebrate her last down set, Rebecca Romaine brought in a bottle of tequila, which she gave to her fellow cast and crew during a break in filming. Unfortunately, that day, she happened to be filming the Wolverine Mystique fight scene, and she threw up blue-coloured vomit from the chemicals in her makeup all over Hugh Jackman. Why would you consume alcohol? Before you finished filming. Before you participate in a what is supposed to be a carefully choreographed so that you don't wound your co-star fight. Well, yeah, she, from the sounds of it, from the confluence of events, you, she wouldn't be like drinking tequila after she'd done the fight. Otherwise, she'd be like, I'm knackered. Oh, and that's the stiff drink I need and I'm going to bed. No. She was like, right, now you punch me. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, under those circumstances, I can see why that fight was so fucking terrible. She was pissed. And feeling very queasy by the sounds of things. Speaking of Darth Maul, speaking of terrible fights, Toad, the ridiculously overpowered Toad, whom I assume we can all just go ahead and uh, uh, consider to be dead, murdered by Storm at the end of this scene. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. he never turns up again Ray Park, the flavour du jour they were like, right, we're going to be told he's going to be just as cool as Darth Maul he even like, does a little spinny staff thing and goes, ah ha ha I'm Darth Maul, kids she explodes him to- Toad is a nobody in the comics he's annoying that's basically what he does he bounces away and he's a, he's a weakling and a fool and um, to a degree they, they made uh, the character a bit more interesting and a bit more dynamic However, he walks, or rather jumps, all over three of the premier X-Men characters, devaluing them. You know how if you make your villains bumbling, you make your hero weaker? Well, if you make your villains so badass that they make your heroes bumbling heroes, you fucked up. Mm-hmm. And he's taken out by Storm, a waif-like, feeble reflection of her statuesque comic persona. Again, backstory cut there was going to be scenes where she was uh, nearly destroying her village in a flashback at the beginning but they got rid of that because it would have uh, there just wasn't time but there was time this had this was an hour and 45 minutes you put the cyclops and the storm scenes back in it's still going to be an hour and 55 minutes tops why did it have to be so fast it's a short film but it doesn't really go by quickly does it no it doesn't and i i I was frustrated with what they failed to do with Storm because I think the there whole was certain, fucking series. Indeed, uh, there was a lack of conviction um, behind who that character is. They were presented with an opportunity to show this incredibly powerful, incredibly statuesque black woman. Well, yeah, the world's first female black superhero. In the comics, there are points where she is effectively worshipped as a goddess. And by casting Halle Berry, who is a small woman, she's not particularly big. You know, she she doesn't have... There's not a lot of her to carry. She's short and pretty. 
yeah, I mean, she she is quite attractive, but there were rumblings in the nineties when they're talking about the movies of Iman, a model, but definitely a woman who resembled Storm. Yeah, and still handsome Absolutely. to this day. Yeah, indeed. Or uh, I think Angela Bassett yeah. had been. Uh, mentioned like years ago i think it probably was getting to the point where she was a little bit too old well, to, she'd have been to considerably play older than her other x-men co-stars at that point, yeah so. but then again i mean storm always had there was always an element of gravitas to her yeah. um that um, that did make her stand out from the other characters but it's this is really difficult because it's not this isn't something that it's really my place to comment on but the ideals of attractiveness that are quite often laid on women of colour in media and, and film particularly. They tried to make them look more like Jessica Alba. Yeah. That you know, they, they gave her this this I mean, Storm has white hair. We're not getting away from that, but it's big white hair. It's very well, wavy. Uh, uh, and hang on. She has changed her hairstyle. She has. More okay, yeah, than... no, that's that's a point. She has had various uh, various hairstyles. Queen Avadala. But I can't remember ever seeing her with long, silky, smooth, straight, very white, white looking straight hair. She she looks like she lost a battle with a set of hair straighteners. Well, no, she just looks like a, a schoolgirl. Yeah, she she looks like nothing special. But I mean, and it, Storm is most definitely a very special character. It's not just the hair because she has different hair in X Men Two. It's a shorter, it's more of a bob. And in X Men Three, it's it's uh, it's different again. And from the sounds of it, she's a more more punky in X Men Four. She looks like a white haired version of Pink. But I don't think she's still she's still not going to be Storm. Mm-hmm. Not really. You know, remember in the X Men Nineties cartoon when you got that that woman, the, the, the actress Iona Morris. Uh, played Aurora Monroe Storm in the original, and she was always super theatrical, lightning and thunder. She was like a British uh, sort of, you know, like a Lawrence Olivier type striding around the place. That would have been too far, but at the same time, that's far closer to Storm. Nature, I command you, bring forth thunder and lightning. I summon the full power of the storm. Her special mutation is is that she can control the weather with her mind. Storm, we have uh, all sorts of weather effects from tornadoes and snowstorm and fog. So that gives us a great playground to play with. Logan, you can't do this alone. Fight with us. It's far closer to someone impactful than what Halle Berry eventually managed. And I, I'm not just going to blame Halle Berry on this one, because ultimately she fought for more prominence for the character. And in X-Men 3, she pretty much wanted second, equal billing with Hugh Jackman. It was going to be Wolverine and Storm's movie. And they thus give her more lines where she's like, where's Professor Xavier? And then they, they tell her. So she's like, she's getting shit done. Um, <laughs> but the, the, her directors have never just gone right we have got to just make storm this goddess as she should be there were ways to do it and none of them were taken she is always this mousy muttering little type character the whole way through Halle Berry in Bullworth and Monster's Ball is capable of incredibly powerful performances and real striking intensity but she doesn't do it here 
I think basically uh, Storm needed to really get angry about something. Mm. There needed to be a case where, where Storm had a principle that was being threatened. Yeah. A principle. Not her friends were being threatened, not Toad was kicking people's asses, and she had to sort of turn up and go... Do you know what happens to a Toad when it's struck by lightning? The same thing that happens to everything else. It explode. Um, (laughs) She needed to care about something and have that something threatened and then react with vigor. And it sort of happens in X-Men 3, but she's kind of baffled the whole way through. We'll talk about that again later, but yet she never really comes out of her groundhog hole. You know, she's too timid the whole way through. And that's a dreadful shame. Again, this is a character who's not going anywhere. They're going to keep Storm in the X-Men, and there will be Storm in later films, who I would imagine is far more impactful, and I look forward to seeing that. I'm not sure we'll ever see a really impactful Cyclops. That takes gumption. You pointed out that she wouldn't be afraid of Senator Kelly turning into water because she is an elemental herself. She is, and she seems. I mean, I could, I could understand it if they'd set that scene up as her feeling genuine compassion for um, this man who is basically dying underneath her hands. But her expression is basically, "It's all squishy," <laughs> and I don't think that that's stool. Michael Fassbender managed to be Magneto in a polo shirt and trousers, so it's not essential. When it comes down to it, it's about the uh, scriptwriter knowing the characters. And from the sounds of it, there were like five different writers uh, on the uh, X-Men script. They just rewrote it, and then they gave it to someone else, and he rewrote it, and they gave it to someone else, and he rewrote it, and someone else, and he rewrote it. The the last person to rewrite it was David Hayter, the voice of Solid Snake himself. And uh, he wanted to carry on with the whole superhero gear. He actually wrote a... uh, fairly successful treatment and script for Watchmen that was going to go through. But eventually, I believe 9-11 happened, and that changed everything. That also may have uh, helped precipitate the age of the superhero. We'll talk about that more when we talk about Spider-Man, but that was a huge deal. People needed heroes after that. Badly. Okay, so Sabretooth, Lumbering Oaf, another major disappointment for me. Sabretooth was always sadistic and he played with your mind and it wasn't just that he was uh, able to commit horrible, atrociously violent acts upon your body, but he uh, would make things very personal. He'd talk about the terrible things he was going to do to people that you cared about or if he knew you at all, he'd stop playing on your fears or your weaknesses or, 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 or things that uh, were in your past. And really he was a bully and when it came down to it he was just using other strengths that he had to manipulate. And in this he's a wrestler named Tyler Mayne who lumbers about and goes and that's about it. He's dumb and his actions are played for laughs sometimes which is a big mistake. He's a henchman. Mm. And they depower the character by doing this. And uh, as, as many things as uh, X-Men Origins Wolverine does wrong, they delivered us Victor Creed. 
And Leif Schreiber does a bang-up job in comparison. Again, if you weaken Sabretooth, who, by the way, doesn't appear to have any relationship to Wolverine, you weaken Wolverine. Mm, absolutely. You strengthen Sabretooth, you strengthen Wolverine. They're uh, one of the examples of the uh, hero and villain being two sides of the same coin, having similar uh, powers and similar um, formative experiences. And I believe that now leaves us scaling the Statue of Liberty after Wolverine won his extremely long fight with Mystique and they get into a fairly uneventful scrap with Magneto. I mean, it's, it's pathetic by the Avengers standards now. Uh, but it was pathetic back in the day, if you remember. I, I, I watched it I was like, Because remember, we had just seen The Matrix just a few months previously. And that, that had arguably action sequences that have not yet been bettered. And you can't actually say, oh, well, you know, The Matrix had a budget uh, that was uh, $63 million less than X-Men. No fucking excuses. When it comes down to it, Brian Singer isn't all that good of a director. He's not very dynamic. He's fairly staid. He's pretty good with the people interaction. When it comes down to Wolverine interacting with anybody or Charles interacting with people, when he's got a really good actor at his disposal, when he has a, a, a powerful tool. But then again, I say that. Halle Berry is capable of being an excellent actress, but she had nothing to do in these movies. Mm crappy action sequences followed by uh, the execution of Magneto's plan now what's your problem with Magneto's plan Sharon um well specifically I don't think they explore his motivations very well Eric is a product of the trauma that he's experienced in his past mm -hmm which, as we discussed at the beginning, is very tied up in um, his experiences in the concentration camps and, and what he witnessed in terms of what the Nazis were doing to uh, Europe in general and his people specifically, and in particular in this, what happens to his uh, parents. He has, however, come out of that with a belief in mutant superiority that his people, the mutants, deserve to be in charge of the world and the humans can go and screw themselves. And he will take steps to eliminate those humans. So he's, he is effectively replicating the, the very thing that traumatised him as a child, which is pretty consistent with the way his psychological profile has been built up. Yeah, that, that, make, that is parallel with him in the comics. Absolutely. Somebody who felt that way, I don't think, and this is assumption on my part, it could be that I am reading this entirely backwards. But I don't think that if, for example, somebody had said to Hitler, rather than massacring all the Jews, you can press this button on this machine and you'll turn them all into non-Jews. How about you do that instead? I don't think Hitler would have gone for that. I don't think making humans mutant in order to get them to understand the mutant condition makes any sense at all. 
Principally because um, it's a genetic quirk. It's not a premeditated act. No one made mutants mutants. Absolutely. And also, most mutants are dealing with different types of condition. You do get mutants who have similar uh, similar genetic changes in them and, and who manifest similar powers. But generally speaking... Then they're not a a collective group. They all see things in different ways. They all experience the world in different ways. The ones who are uh, very visually mutated tend to experience more hostility. Uh, the ones whose mutations are more easily hidden um, can pass in day-to-day life without actually having things thrown at them on the street. But they still have to witness the fact that there's a lot of hatred going on, um, but might not necessarily feel comfortable challenging it, lest it be turned on them. All, all of the intricacies that go on within the mutant community, you can't wipe that all away by, I mean, what's what's the, the point of the machine? What's it do? It, it releases any latent mutation in people's cells, is that it? I don't know. It doesn't say. You just pop it on your wrist. This is the thing. It can be reduced to simply, I think this machine does X, Y, Z, when in reality the X-Men are aware it doesn't. It turns you into a wibbly thing. That's that's what the entire plot, final plan, rests upon. Eric hasn't tested this machine. Who made it? How does it work? He tests it on Senator Kelly. Senator Kelly escapes before they have an ability to really assess him. And then Eric just rushes through with the plan and gets it done anyway. He's been waiting Since the 1940s, may I suggest, if this is what your plan hinges upon, Eric, you test it on a few subjects first, assess what that does to them, see if there's consistency, have some control subjects, know what you're doing, see the results, see how they feel, psych test them all. If, that, if that's what you're actually trying to do, if you're trying to change people's bodies and minds, it seems like the sort of thing that was thought up by someone who's very meticulous, very exacting. They have a very clear idea of how things are going to work. But they're using a machine that you press a button and something happens, they're not sure what. That doesn't make any sense. That's inconsistent. It's ridiculous that that is what this movie hinges upon. If you actually asked Ian McKellen to explain it, you go... Well, uh, Eric has uh, this machine, and it sort of turns people into mutants, I would suppose. But um, he's not entirely sure of how it works, but uh, he's going to bloody well use it because the warranty runs out in a few days. And <laughs> But that's the thing. You get one shot at this. If he really wants to change the face of the way mutants are viewed on the planet, he needs to know what he's about to do. If he sets off a bomb on purpose to kill them, that is a very deliberate act. But he's not trying to kill them. He's trying to make them into mutants. So he needs to know what the fuck he's doing. And I suppose you could just give it, uh, explain it away with, well, he's a very determined, stubborn, and let's face it, mad individual. But that is weak-ass excuse-making. And dismissive. Yeah. He is not mad. Would you testify to that? <laughs> yes. If they were if they had him on trial, I don't think you could get the insanity defense by him. Yeah. Well, significantly this is one of the few X-Men films that's actually not based on an X-Men comic and it shows because it doesn't There's really no make that much sense. Line. There's no structure yeah. to it. 
Not that the X-Men stories have been particularly well-structured, but they take a long time of uh, of development, and, and people have to... Especially now, Marvel have to know what the fuck is happening in their stories because they need to plan way ahead of time. They have their, you know, three, four-year plans worked out. And this was very much done to introduce the world to mutants. And it's got a machine. We know not what it does. There is a word in science for a machine, a box that does something. And this all rounds up to uh, Senator Kelly, who gets changed on a genetic level and turns into a wibbly water creature. But the actual man himself is far more interesting than what happens to him. I think the way Kelly's used, and as you say, he is, he's pretty believable. He's a believable, and, uh, terrified racist. Yeah, absolutely. And that ties in with the whole wanting to make uh, a, a serious a film that overlaps with real life as much as possible. If you start with the real life horror, as we said at the beginning, that enables the script writers to kind of click with the real world. And Look at the fuss people are still making about gay marriage. And these are homosexuals who cannot emit blasts of cosmic energy. That we <laughs> oh my know God, of. it would be so awesome if they could, though. But carry on. Um, yeah, so anyway, moving on. Um, Frankly, the so, uh, the reaction to mutants is fairly subdued. Compared to some, yes, it is. Um, so the the um the merging of the the political current when you we move back to sort of what is effectively the present although it does have that little caption of in somewhere in the immediately future the filmmakers get to use the audience's knowledge of their own history as a shorthand so you you've got the um the senate hearings and the uh the evidence that um that Jean Grey is presenting there's kind of a a McCarthyist feel about that Absolutely. Communists you know, the, hiding in plain sight. Yeah. The, when they start, when they start talking about, you know, what do mutants have to hide and why are they afraid to come forward and tell us who they are? And before you know it, people are going to start being accused of being mutants left, right and center because somebody didn't like their political standpoint on XYZ. And, uh, you know, that makes it feel more real than your standard superhero fare. You know, Clark Kent never has to contend with this shit. The terms of reference, the terms of discussion that are used um, in in that context, and it's Kelly's character who's who's putting all of this forward. The idea of people being born a certain way, and um, he he talks about the fact that he doesn't think the American people will tolerate their children being taught by mutants. Well, the mutants he's talking about are also the American people, but he conveniently forgets that which. Which, you know, when when people are addressing issues of um, communities that they consider to be not theirs, they forget that they're all in the same community together. You, they need more uh, more of an integrated approach and um, and, and looking at, at the mutants as people would be the progressive way forward. But it's all very much sort of this us and them feeling and them are on the other side of the walls and he doesn't seem to grasp the idea that there could be one of these mutants stood right in front of him which it, it seems logical she's presenting mutant sympathetic arguments but it never seems to occur to him at least not at that stage
so it ends with Charles and Eric playing chess and you get that uh, crucial bond of friendship that exists between them it is implied that even though they are at war with one another and even though Eric at this point appears to be beaten there is still that mutual respect there is still that friendship there is still that bond which is going to last them the rest of their lives and that's very very important as a note to end on now, Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart didn't know how to play chess. They'd never really played. So they got uh, a chess expert in to teach them how, so that they could look like they actually knew what they were doing. <laughs> Folks may notice that um, Charles is using a pawn assault. This is where you take down the king with just your pawns, leaving all your knights, rooks, and bishops, and your queen back behind your lines. It's a very, very difficult tactic. But that is a subtle implication that Charles, boiling beneath the surface, is an ice-cold tactician. This is also the first of many, many plastic prisons that people have been imprisoned in since X-Men. <laughs> yeah. Well, they are visually very interesting. And the note that, or at least they were. <laughs> and the note that I'm going to end on now is uh, the popular mutant Gambit was originally going to make a cameo appearance in the film as a student playing with a basketball and then blowing it up. Gambit's power was to charge an object with kinetic energy, forcing it to explode. Brian Singer rejected the cameo, thinking the audience wouldn't understand it. People would be like, what's wrong with those basketballs? What do you think that made me think of, Sharon? I'm not sure. Remember that basketball? Remember that scene in the jerk? Oh, with the paint can. What's wrong with these cans? Something's terribly wrong with the cans. Stay away from the cans. He hates these cans. Stay away from the cans. I guess, pupper. I gotta get away from those cans. Those cans in there too. The idea is Brian Singer thinks his audience are as stupid as Steve Martin's fictional character in the film The Jerk. You're making a film about mutants with powers. No one's going to think there's a problem with the basketballs. Brian Singer was not the right man for the job for this. I mean, technically he was in terms of the fact that he kept the superhero film. It, it was allowed to, to go through. However, Spider-Man was already in the works at this point, and I actually think Spider-Man could have done it on its own and is far more competent as a uh, first attempt at getting the superhero up and running. And I genuinely would have liked to see a more competent director starting off with the X-Men. There is a long, long list of directors I would rather have seen introduce and continue with the X-Men franchise. And time will tell whether he is able to redeem himself with... There's a future past. But we'll cover that in an upcoming episode. Indeed we will. And we'll be back very, very soon with X-Men 2 and 3 and the Wolverine films, followed by X-Men First Class, where we'll finally get to say nice things. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, to, to close on a positive note, this film did do several things we've already mentioned extremely well. It gave us Wolverine, a major character. It gave the world Hugh Jackman. And for that, we must be thankful. Indeed. And it did lend the superhero genre, to begin with, a note of respectability, which it maybe would have started without otherwise. Brian Singer also allowed McKellen to reschedule the shooting to allow him to go off and become Gandalf the Grey. Okay, we'll be back soon with X-Men 2. 
Mutants United. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And Neural Handshake handshake Complete. complete. Doesn't it ever wake you in the middle of the night? The feeling that someday they will pass that foolish law, or one just like it, and come for you and your children. It does indeed. What do you do when you wake up to that? I feel a great swell of pity for the poor soul who comes to that school looking for trouble. Why do you come here, Charles? Why do you ask questions to which you already know the answers? Yes. You're continuing search for hope. This plastic prison of theirs won't hold me forever. The war is still coming, Charles, and I intend to fight it. By any means necessary. And I will always be there. Old friend.